morning, everyone. I'm Meredith Dancos. I'm the teaching pastor here at The Rock, and we are continuing our series, What the Health? We've been talking about the seven deadly sins, and today we are talking about sloth, sloth. And so I thought we'd kick it off with a little bit of a sloth scene. So, um, but here's the thing. In our culture, did you notice that we keep talking about how busy everything is? You know, everyone's busy and fast, and, you know, we're fixated on accomplishments, and it seems like everything's moving faster and faster and faster. And so with the culture moving faster, there's this countercultural movement going on that's starting to value laziness. In fact, there are lazy competitions to see who can be the laziest. I'm not making this up. There are literally lazy competitions. So there's some on social media that like you post the laziest picture that you can with certain hashtags. But in, in there's two around the world. One is in uh, Seoul, South Korea, which South Korea is a super hyper competitive culture. And so they created this thing called the Space Out Competition. And the first year, it started out with like thousands of participants and they whittled it down to 70, 70 finalists. And they went to this park, this famous park, and they put out these blue chairs and they had to sit there. And these 90 people sat there, or 70 people sat there for 90 minutes. And over those 90 minutes, they monitored their heart rate every 15 minutes. And the person who had the steadiest heartbeat for those, for those 90 minutes, one, right? And it ended up being a guy called Crush the Rapper. So he won the first one. And then in, in Montenegro, they actually have what are called the Lazy Olympics. And they've been going on for the last four years. And at the Lazy Olympics, you have to lay there. And you can't move, you can't check your phone, you can't get up to do anything, anything at all. And so let me tell you what the record is for the Lazy Olympics. Four people did it together. It wasn't a tag team. They just decided to all like do the record at the same time, and they hold um, 49 hours of laying down. They can't get up for anything for 49 hours. I'll let you picture that. So, you know, lazy, I mean, and so we've got competitions to see who can be lazy, but also employers are starting to see that maybe laziness might actually be an asset in their favor. And so there's this quadrant that, that we've got here, and this is, you know, someone in Harvard, very smart, put this together. And uh, there's, you know, on one axis, there's lazy and there's hardworking. And on the other one, there's smart and there's dumb. And you would think that the worst employees would probably be dumb and lazy, right? Nope. The worst employees they found are dumb and hardworking because they don't know what they're doing, but they will keep doing it over and over and over again. And then you think, you think the best employees would be smart and hardworking, right? And that's the quadrant that like when I did this, I'm like, yeah, that, that's where I'd find myself. And then I had my three, my husband and my two best friends, they were like, oh no, we're, we're definitely not in the smart and hardworking quadrant. We're in the smart and lazy. I was like, what? And they said, oh, you were that person in school who showed your work, weren't you? And I was like, of course I showed my work. That's, that's the rules. They're like, you don't need to show your work. Like, that's a waste of time. The best employees they found are actually smart and lazy because they will find the best way to do something with the least amount of effort. So they'll cut corners, but they'll get it done. They'll still get it done right. And so even like laziness is being seen as possibly an asset at work. And some people are saying, you know, when it comes to our culture being so fast and so busy and moving at this pace, it's just out of control that maybe sloth shouldn't be a deadly sin any longer. You know, maybe it's a virtue. We need to move it over because more people need to be more slothful and the world would get better. But that is a fundam fundamental misunderstanding of what sloth actually is. Because sloth isn't, you know, taking a Saturday and binging on a Netflix show or taking a day off and not doing anything or sleeping late in bed. Those might be signs of sloth, that sloth is at work in your life, but that's not 
sloth. Sloth, just like all the other deadly sins we've been talking about, is much less about behavior, and it's more about a heart condition. It's something that's going on in your heart. And so what is sloth? What is sloth? If it's not just physical laziness, what's sloth? Well, the Christian tradition has held that sloth is actually a failure to love. That's what sloth is. Sloth is a failure to love. And Jeff Cook puts it well. He says this, at its core, sloth moves us away from everything that ultimately matters and directs us towards simple distractions. Sloth is not mere laziness. Sloth is indifference. Indifference toward my soul, my neighbors, my world, or my God. In fact, sloth is best expressed not by a lazy attitude, but zeal over petty matters. So sloth can best be understood as indifference or apathy or a lack of care or a lack of effort. And in all of these deadly sins, we've been talking about how there's a virtue, a God-given virtue that gets distorted. And the one that gets distorted when it comes to sloth is diligence. And diligence is being consistent and it's being persistent and it's, and it's being effective. And so when we lose the virtue of diligence, we fall into Sloth, because diligence means you do hard work. You show up and, and you work. And here's the thing, an intentional life and a meaningful life takes work. Healthy relationships take work. And sloth falls into this, this pattern of just saying, well, I just wanna be content with just good enough. Like, this should be fine. Like, this is enough. I don't, it's, not, it's not true contentment. It's trying to settle for less and then make ourselves happy with it. That's really what sloth is. It's saying it's not worth the effort. It's not worth the work. It's not worth all the, the risk and the problems that might come with it. And so, yes, it can show up as physical laziness, but it often shows up in other ways, which we're going to see. And Jesus gives us some really incredible wisdom in the face of sloth. So I'm going to take us to an interaction that Jesus has where sloth is at work, and we see it, and then we see how he interacts with it. So in the Gospel of Luke, we read this. One Sabbath... When Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Okay, so Jesus is at the home of this big, important Pharisee, right? And the Pharisees, they're the leaders of the, of the Jewish tradition. And so he's, he's there, but they've, they've not really been getting along with Jesus. You know, this is a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke, and he's had a bunch of run-ins with them. So they're not super happy with him. So he's at this dinner, and they're keeping an eye on him. Like they're, they got their eyes, they're watching to see what he does, right? And so keeping a close watch. And then there's this guy with abnormal swelling, edema in his body. And here's the thing about edema. It was considered a, an outward sign of an inward sin, right? So it was like some, something's going on with this guy, and he probably deserves what's happening. That would be the, the, the uh, thinking of the day. And many scholars think this might have been a setup, Right, that they, because this guy is randomly at this party that might have been a setup because he doesn't ask to be healed and it doesn't, no one's offended that he's there. So it might have been the setup for them to see what's he going to do because Jesus has been healing on the, th the Sabbath and the Pharisees are not happy with it. So here comes this guy and Jesus turns to them and he says, 
well, tell me, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And nobody says anything. Crickets. And so Jesus goes ahead and he just heals the man. He heals the man and he sends him on his way. And that word, sends him on his way, actually is better translated, he sets him free. He sets him free. And so he sets this man free and then he turns to the, to the crowd and he says to them, well, if you had an ox or a child that falls in the well, wouldn't you pick them up? And again, nobody says anything. And this is one of the few healings, this is why they think it might be a setup, that there's no response to. Normally there's great rejoicing by a crowd or other people who are like, whoa, did you see what Jesus just did? It's nothing. Nothing at all. And what Jesus is doing in this interaction, when he looks at them and they have nothing to say, they don't, they, they can't answer the question, he's exposing the sloth that is at work in their heart. Because remember, sloth isn't laziness. Sloth is a failure to love. It's a failure to do the work of love. It's a resistance to the transforming love of God. And so we've got this group of experts who, are like, who can't even be bothered to think any different. They can't be bothered to see it differently because for them, you only heal on the Sabbath if it's life or death. Unless someone's about to bleed out, they can wait. It can wait till the next day. That is their mentality. Really, it's this doesn't affect me, and so I don't need to think about it. I don't need to rethink this. And so he's showing the failure of love that is at the core of their interpretation of the law. And then Jesus goes on to challenge their thinking. And he tells them, he tells them a story. He says this. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell all those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house uh, became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So Jesus, after he's had this interaction with these guys who are just like, can't be bothered to think about someone else and the condition that they're in and rethink the way that they've interpreted the law. He tells them the story about this guy who's this big important man who's throwing this banquet, this, this great banquet. And that word great means like splendid and magnificent and marvelous. This is not just an ordinary dinner party. This is something like you don't want to miss it. And so he sent out all the invitations. They said yes. And then what would happen back then is, you know, they'd have to do all the preparations for the banquet. And when the food is ready, they'd send out servants to say, okay, now's the time to come. Now you got it, like everything's ready. Come on. So they've been invited to this spectacular, marvelous, incredible banquet. And they've said yes, but the moment that it comes to actually show up, they all have an excuse. And it says, to the one. Like every single person who got invited had an excuse. And on the surface, it looks like maybe these are legitimate ex excuses. But when you dig deeper, you begin to see like they're all pretty lame. Like these are not real excuses. The first one who says, I bought a field, so I got to go check it out. That would be like you saying, I bought a house. And now I'm going to go get it, get it inspected to make sure that it was a good, good investment, right? Like you inspect your house before 
you buy it. Or the guy who's like, I've got these oxen and I bought them and now I gotta go try them. Well, that's like buying a car and then saying, I've gotta go test drive the car I just bought, right? You don't do that. So this is not a real excuse. And then the third one, getting married, wouldn't prevent someone from actually being part of a banquet. None of these are necessary excuses. None of these would actually mean that they couldn't come. And so what's happening here? And we see that Jesus begins to expose that what is at the core of sloth. What, at the core, what is at the core of sloth is this. I say it like this. It's choosing the ordinary to the exclusion of the extraordinary. Sloth is choosing the ordinary to the exclusion of the extraordinary. Because each person there is choosing this ordinary, everyday, mundane thing that actually isn't the most important over this marvelous, spectacular, magnificent banquet that is just ready for them. They don't have to do anything. They just show up. All they had to do was say yes. And we have to wonder, how, how could they make that choice that doesn't seem to make any sense? But the reality is we are not much different than those servants because we regularly choose the ordinary and the distractions and the things that actually aren't the most important to the exclusion of the extraordinary transforming love of God because sloth is the resistance to transformation. It is the resistance to love. It, and so I want to look at how does sloth show up in our lives how do we choose the ordinary to the exclusion of the extraordinary? And I see it in four ways. The first one is apathy. Apathy. And apathy is really a lack of effort. And this is the one that most of us would say, yeah, that's sloth. Like, that, that's the classic understanding of sloth right there. And it's, it's not really showing an interest. It's, you know, it's a lack of enthusiasm. It's a lack of concern. It's not necessarily that things couldn't be better. It just doesn't feel like worth the effort to make it better. You know, it's like, this is fine. This is good enough. And so I have um, someone that I'm related to who is the epitome of apathy. So he has a college degree. He has all the means within him to, like, make a life that's meaningful, purposeful. He's been set up well. And instead, he's working a job that he's like, eh, doesn't require anything of me. And he's, you know, he's decided, like, I'd just rather, like, go on a date here or there rather than actually have a relationship. That seems like a lot of work. And, like, he's just living in this small little apartment that he's like, eh, I don't need to decorate it or make it. It's just this is where I live. You know, and he set his whole life up to be as comfortable as possible without any challenges at all. He has, he has everything at his fingertips that he could have a meaningful, purposeful life. But he's just decided it doesn't really seem worth all that work. It seems like a lot of work to be meaningful. And, and so apathy can show up in all sorts of ways in our lives. It can show up relationally. I think I see a lot of apathy in, in relationships where they know that marriage might be a good thing, but they're like, eh, that's a, that's a lot of commitment. And things are just kind of fine the way that they are, so let's just keep it the same. Like, why, why add something to our relationship? Like, why take a deeper commitment and like, go through all that, like, intertwining our lives? And we could just, like, you know, hang out for the rest of our lives and just kind of ride this out. You know, or work, where there's a lot of people who are like, I don't like my job, but it seems like a lot of work to try to find something else to do. So I'll just do this. This is fine. You know, or faith. We see in faith where it's like, yeah, I'd like to have a deeper relationship with God, and I'd like, I'd like to be more connected with God, but, you know, that seems like a lot of work. And so this is good enough. And that's really, this form of sloth is really, it's just, it's good enough. It's, it's trying to settle 
for less than what God has for us. It's trying to be content with less. And that's not, again, not a good godly contentment. It's just this kind of, uh, I'm just kind of indifferent. I'm not really looking for more. I'm not really looking to do more. And C.S. Lewis says it like this. I love it. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition with inf when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's apathy. Just starts to settle for less. And this lack, this lack of effort leads to this lackluster life where it just feels like, meh, I'm getting by. I'm not looking, I'm not looking for more. I'm not, I'm not even going to bother being discontent. I'm just going to ride this out. So that's the first form of sloth. But sloth doesn't always come in the form of apathy and lack of work and laziness. It can come with lots of activity. And so the second one, this might surprise you, the second form of sloth is actually escapism, which is a lack of presence. And this is where we, because remember, sloth is a failure to love. It's a resistance to transformation. And so this is where we just keep ourselves busy. I keep myself busy so I don't have to actually notice that maybe my life is being driven by discontent, that maybe there's something under the surface. And so I'm so resistant to actually allowing God to reveal something in my life that I'm just going to keep going at a pace that if I don't slow down, I won't see it. You know, and so this can show up as workaholism over commitment. It can show up with always needing to be entertained or always needing to have the next adventure on the horizon. And ultimately, it's laziness when it comes to relationship. It's laziness when it comes to actually seeing that what is driving my life. I don't want to slow down enough. It is the sloth of distraction is what it is. And so it's not diligence. It's just distraction. If I just keep busy enough, then I won't see it. Rick Warren says it like this. For many people, the barrier to spiritual growth is not a lack of commitment, but overcommitment to the wrong things. Because see, distraction and constant movement and escapism and busyness it, it's a resistance to the demands of love because the demands of love require us to slow down and actually be introspective and to pay attention, but we don't want to do that. And so it's ultimately a failure of love. It, we choose this ordinary busyness at the expense of God's transforming love. The third form of sloth that we see is indifference. And this is a lack of care because sloth can be about behavior, but it can also be about attitude. You know, because remember, sloth, all of these are a condition of the heart. And this is when we start to say, I can't be bothered to think about it from another person's perspective. I can't be bothered to think about how my behavior, my words, my impact has on another person. And so this can look like, you know, um, maybe it's not being careful with how you talk about one another. It can be an indifference to justice and injustice in the world, to thinking like, ah, it's not my problem. You know, I'm fine. It can, it can be an unwillingness to serve others. It can be an inability to forgive and holding on to a grudge. Lying is a form of sloth. Because ultimately lying is saying, I can't be bothered to think about how you might feel or what the truth might, might be for you. I just can't even be bothered to think about it. So at its core, sloth becomes selfish and self-centered. Because we only start to think about ourselves and we can't be bothered to love the other person. Because you know what? Serving, that can be really inconvenient. And forgiving is hard work. 
sometimes. And being generous means I go without sometimes. And, and all that just feels like I, I can't be bothered. And that, again, is at the core of sloth. I can't be bothered. And it's really, it's this laziness around relationship. And, and I've worked in the church for a long time. And you think, well, that's, you know, maybe that's outside of these walls, right? But in every church, I've worked for a, a number of churches. In every church, there's a group of people that I just, that I call the takers, right? And, and what I mean by that is they show up and they need to get their exact seat, you know, ex- and if someone sits in it, they're upset, and the coffee better be hot for them, right? And the, and the sermon better feed them, and the worship music better be their favorite hits, and they've got very particular, and they might be faithful in their attendance, but they're slothful in their attitude because they don't serve, and they don't give, and they don't stop to think, like, maybe this isn't all about me, but when we get into this indifference, this lack of care, it's all about me. It's all about what I want and how I feel and what makes me most comfortable. And so Brennan Manning has some stark words about this. He says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Because Jesus says, the world will identify us as his followers by how we love other people. And so when sloth sets in and we start to get indifferent about how our actions, our words impact other people, or even the lack of, of blessing, because really indifference is withholding blessing from others as well, we, we, we fail to actually reveal who Jesus is. He says that is at its core. It's slothful. It's a failure to love. And then the fourth one that we see is the lack of perspective. And this is what I call resignation. And this, this tends to happen. We fall into this form of sloth because we cared at one point. We cared at one point, but then we started to settle for the ordinary, thinking we'd find meaning there, but we don't find meaning there. And then suddenly life just feels like totally meaningless. It's, it's beyond apathy where it's like, oh, I can't even be bothered. It's like, I don't, I don't want to try again. You know, I, I tried, didn't work. I don't want to keep going. And Donald Miller says it's normally in the middle of our story that we start to lose perspective, that we lose hope and we get into this resignation. He says it like this. I think this is when most people give up on their stories in the middle of their story. They come out of college wanting to change the world, wanting to get married, wanting to have kids and change the way people buy office supplies. But they get into the middle and discover it was harder than they thought. They can't see the distant shore anymore, and they wonder if their paddling is moving them forward. None of the trees behind them are getting smaller, and none of the trees ahead of them are getting bigger. They take it out on their spouses, and they go looking for an easier story. And when you fall into resignation, this lack of perspective, see, this is when we fall into the quit and stay part of our life, where we quit something, but we stay in it. So you can quit and stay all sorts of things. You can quit and stay your marriage. Right? You can be like, eh, I'm not really interested in like working on communication or connecting or building this relationship at all, but I'm not going anywhere either. You know, I'm just gonna just gonna stay in this thing because it's it's fine. You know, you can quit and stay a commitment where you're still part of the team, but you're not you're not actually contributing. You can quit and stay friendships, and you can quit and stay work. And this is where I see it the most often, where people they they don't want to be in their job anymore. They don't find it fulfilling, but they're not really willing to go anywhere else. And so they quit and stay. And really, it's where we start to lose hope and we start to lose uh, perspective because we're actually beginning to willfully resist 
that God might have something else for us when we quit and stay. So I worked with someone at a different church who fell into this pattern. She had been in children's ministry for 20 years, and she'd gotten to this point where she just lost her passion for that ministry. But it's what she'd done for 20 years, and so she was not looking to do anything else. She was just kind of, you know, figured this is good enough. You know, I know my job, and it's fine. But here's the thing when you quit and stay. It affects everyone around you. And so with her, like, her work started to go downhill because she wasn't actually putting her heart into it. She wasn't living out of a calling and a passion that she had once had. It wasn't what God had for her anymore, but she she was resisting that. And then her attitude went downhill from there, and she just became bitter and grouchy and resentful and cynical and just this kind of downer to be around. It started to affect the team dynamic. And ultimately, she was resisting that God might have something new on the horizon. And and unfortunately for her, it took a dramatic event to push her out the door, right? It wasn't like, oh, okay, I, I can see what's happening, and I'm settling for less, and I'm actually discontent. It, it took you know, someone else having to force her out of that role to, for her to see, oh, maybe God does have something else for me. But when we quit and stay, it's just us saying, you know what, I don't, I don't, I don't want to try anymore. I don't want to do anymore. I'm just going to stay here. And we lose hope, and we lose perspective and we lose we lose our ability to love because when we're when we're not invested in something we can't actually love the people around us and love the work and and do do the things that God has called us to do in the way God has called us to do that and so when we lose perspective Jesus wants to challenge that Jesus wants to give us new perspective he wants to remind us who he is and what life is really about so let's go back to that story that he was telling. Because in the story, remember, he had sent out this invitation and all these people who said yes were like, I'm going to choose this ordinary mundane thing instead. But the guy who's throwing the party is committed to having a party. He's he's not like, oh, okay, I guess, well, we'll just throw all this food away. He's like, no, okay, this is what we do. And he tells this to his servant. He says, then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So let's stop there first. He issues a first invitation. And these would be the people in the town who would never normally get an invitation to this party. You know, these are all the outcasts. And, like, they wouldn't come to a big fancy party. But he says, go get them. Go get all those people. And the servant says, okay, sure. And then he does. And then he comes back and he says, you know, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. So he issues a second invitation. He says, then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. And when he, the second invitation is like going out to like the real bad part of town, right? That's where like all the people who aren't allowed to live in town are. So that's where the Gentiles are. That's where the prostitutes are. That's where the bandits are. And all. He's like, go and get them too. Get all the riffraff. Get anyone, fill it up. Fill this house up. And, the, the, and this is the thing. The point of Jesus' story is, God's love is wild and inclusive and extravagant and magnificent, and it's this big invitation, and the only people who get excluded from it are the ones who exclude themselves. Those are the only people left out from the party. This guy is committed to having a great party, and everyone gets to be invited except for the people who exclude themselves. And how do they exclude themselves? They choose less. They choose not to say yes to this banquet that is ready 
and waiting for them. They choose something ordinary and mundane. They choose the ordinary to the exclusion of the extraordinary. And it seems impossible, but there's a reason why we fall into sloth. And it's not because we're not smart enough or because we're lazy. We fall into sloth. We have a failure to love because we ourselves have not actually truly received the love of God. We have not actually said yes and shown up to the banquet. And when we have a lack of love in our own lives, it pours out, right? From what whatever is going on inside of your heart comes out in your life. And so if you have not been filled up with the love of God, you will have a failure to love. You will fall into sloth. It's a heart condition. And we have to wonder, why would, why would people not say yes to the love of God? Well, the love of God is not a neutral force in our lives. It is a powerful force, and it wants to have a say in your life. And no one speaks about the love of God better than Brennan Manning. So some of you know who Brennan Manning is, some of you don't, but Brennan, I'm going to let you know who he is. Brennan Manning uh, he, he's a prolific Christian, well, he was, he's, he's passed on now, but he's a prolific Christian writer, and he uh, was a soldier in the Korean War, and he had this very dramatic experience that changed his life, and he came back and started seeking God, and he became a Franciscan monk, and from that, he went and lived with the poorest of the poor all around the world, and he served them, he was part of that, and then eventually, he left, he left uh, the priesthood, and he, and he got married, but through all of that, you know, when he did all these amazing things, he had this secret that he had kept for years and years and years. And his secret was that he was a raging alcoholic. And, and he had other addictions alongside that, but alcohol was his major addiction. And so he would go and serve the poorest of the poor and look so holy during the day and then come home at night and drink himself until he blacked out. And he did this for years and years and years. And he felt all this shame and he kept saying, I was try he, he was trying and trying and trying to earn the love of God. And eventually his marriage fell apart because of his addictions. And, and his life started to fall apart because of his addictions. And then, because he said he was stuck in this, this moralistic religion. Like, I have to do it right and get it right and be right. And then in the middle of one of his darkest days, he had this profound experience with the love of God. Where the love of God met him at his lowest point, and he realized, oh, I don't earn this. I don't earn this. I am loved even when I'm in this condition. I am loved even when I'm at my worst, that God's love is always available to me. God's love is always reaching out to me, even at my worst, and it is actually through my failures that I can best experience God's love. And so this is how he describes the love of God. He calls it the furious longing of God. And he says the furious longing of God is that we would know how deeply loved we are. And he says this, if you took all the love of all the best mothers and fathers who have lived in the course of human history, all their goodness, kindness, patience, fidelity, wisdom, tenderness, strength, and love, and united all those qualities in a single person, that person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy at the heart of God the Father addressed to you and me at this moment. He's saying the best love you've ever received, the most loving person, even if you took all the most loving people you ever knew and you put them all together, they wouldn't even compare. God's love is that vast. But he says that most Christians have an easier time believing that God exists than that God loves them. 
You know, we're, we're, we're fine to know that God exists, and we want to serve God, I mean, we worship God, but to really know that God loves us, most of us struggle with that. But he says this, for his love is never, never, never based on our performance, never conditioned by our moods of elation or depression. The furious love of God knows no shadow, shadow of alteration or change. It is reliable and always tender. It's like a great giant banquet that you are invited to and it's ready and, it's, and, it, and you don't have to do anything to earn it. All you have to do is show up. That's it. Because he says Christianity, it's not, it's not a moral code. It's not an exercise in morality. He says Christianity is a love affair and it makes us professional lovers of God and people. Like we should be the best lovers of God and people because we, we serve a God who is so incredibly loving. In fact, he says this. He says, I could no more, I could more easily contain Niagara Falls in a teacup than I can comprehend the wild, uncontainable love of God. And so the remedy, the first part of the remedy to sloth is not to do more or, you know, set your alarm earlier, get a hobby. The first part of the remedy to sloth is to receive this wild, uncontainable, furious love of God for you and to let it overflow into your life and fill you up because until you are filled with that love, you will fail to love. It is because we have a lack of love in our own lives because we haven't said yes and shown up to the banquet because that love, it will change us and it will define us. And again, he says this, the wild, unrestricted love of God is not simply an inspiring idea when it imposes itself on mind and heart. It determines why and at what time you get up in the morning, how you pass your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, who you hang with. It affects what breaks your heart and, and what amazes you and what makes your heart happy. See, the love of God is kind of like breathing because you take it in and then you take air in and then you breathe it out right? And if you only take air in and hold it, you'll die. And if you don't take air in, you'll die, right? But you need, it's this, it's this rhythm. And it's the same with the love of God. When we take it in, we begin to live it out. That's, that's the remedy. So the second part of the remedy of sloth is reclaiming diligence. But we don't reclaim diligence first. We reclaim diligence because we have been so loved. But diligence is the commitment to doing the loving thing. Diligence is the commitment to say, no matter what, I will be persistent and consistent. And so uh, it, it means that we continue to say yes to love. And Rebecca DeYoung puts it like this. And it's through the daily practices and disciplines, whether we feel like doing them or not, that the decision to love is renewed and refreshed, and that the commitment of love is kept alive. The slothful person in this sense is one who resists the effort of doing day after day after day, whatever it takes to keep the bonds of love strong and living and healthy, whether he or she feels particularly inspired about doing it. Diligence is about doing the loving thing even when we don't necessarily feel like it. Diligence is about choosing to live out the love of God even when we feel like that might not serve our own needs. And we choose to live that way because we are first filled with God's extravagant love. And so what does diligence 
looks like look like what does choosing diligence look like well in your marriage it can it can look like committing to actually turning the television off and having a conversation or it can it can mean committing to actually having a date night or reading up on marriage or or attending a marriage seminar it can mean for some of you getting married to saying actually you know what we've been we've been doing this thing and and this has been easy for me but i'm willing to make that commitment because that's, that's the loving thing to do, to actually be in a covenant relationship with you. Choosing diligence can mean investing in your work, and that could mean changing your attitude about your current work and showing up and saying, you know, I'm going to give it my best when I'm here. I'm not going to quit and stay. I'm not going to ride this thing out. I'm not just going to do what's easy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my highest contribution. Or it could mean saying, you know, I've, I've chosen work that doesn't fill my soul at all, and I'm not making a contribution, and I actually am going to do the work to find how I can bless others and bless the world. It can be choosing to serve, you know, because again, serving is inconvenient, but serving is about blessing others, and it's beginning to say, what do I have to offer? And maybe, maybe that's, you know, volunteering somewhere or caring for a neighbor, or caring for a family member, but I can serve others. Life is not just about me. I will, I will work against indifference in my life. It can mean choosing to forgive, because that's a lot of work. And next week, we're going to talk a lot about forgiveness. So if that's, that's where you're at, and you feel like I've been holding on to something, I would encourage you to be here next week, because we talk about what does that actually mean to really do the work of forgiving. You know, it can be diligence in your faith to say, I'm going to take my relationship with God seriously. That might mean I'm going to pray or I'm going to join a small group. I'm going to start attending church regularly. I'm going to be part of something where I start to put God in the center of my life rather than just trying to pencil God in. We choose what is loving when we know that we are loved. We do the work of the day after day after day after day. We, We are persistent and consistent. Because that is the demand of love. The demand of love requires something of us. And so I would ask you, what, what does diligence look like in your life? Is it, you know, reaching out to someone, writing a note, picking up the phone, sending a text, praying for them? How, how can you say yes to the demands of love versus resisting them? But remember, all of this comes because we have been loved first. And, and I know that there are some people here today who maybe you intended to say yes to the love of God at one point in your life, but the ordinary kind of took over and you've just kind of been writing it out. Or maybe you have never said yes to this wild, furious love of God, this invitation, this banquet that is waiting for you. This invitation to do life with God who wants to pour his love into you. Jesus says it like this. This is his invitation to us. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So if that's, if that's you today, if you hear that invitation and go, that is what I want in my life. You know what, God, I haven't said yes, or I thought I said yes, and then I didn't show up. You know, but 
And maybe this lack of love in my life that I'm experiencing is really because I've never truly accepted your love into my life. I want to say saying yes is the easiest thing you can do. You're saying God, God is ready and waiting for you to say yes. The banquet is already set. So I'm going to invite us to, right now to just take a moment. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. And if that's you this morning, that's you that you, you've never said yes to God's love. And today you feel ready to do that. You want to say yes and show up. I'm just going to invite you to just pop your hand up into the air. I'm not going to single you out. I'm not going to make you stand up. But we're going we're gonna to pray. And if that's, if that's you today, I see that hand and that hand. If you want to draw closer to God today, I see that over there. Mm-hmm. That's you. Go ahead and put your hand up. I'm going to pray for you. I see that hand too. Yep, over there too. If you're ready to choose, yes, for Jesus. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a prayer over us today. You can just keep your eyes closed, especially for those. Maybe, maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you, you feel God nudging at you. This is, this is a prayer for you. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God and that you died on the cross to rescue me and save me from sin and death and to restore me to life, life, and more life. I choose now to turn from my sins, my self-centeredness, my brokenness, and every part of my life that does not please you. I choose you. I give myself to you. I receive your forgiveness and ask you to take your rightful place in my life as my Savior and Lord. Come reign in my heart. Fill me with your love and your life and help me to become a person who is truly loving, a person like you. Restore me, Jesus. Live in me. Love through me. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, can we just take a moment and... uh, applaud. There's been a bunch of people who raised their hand today to invite Jesus into their life. That's exciting. Yeah. It's the best decision you'll ever make. Uh, hey, we're going to stand up, we're going to sing, and we're going to sing about the furious love of God that just chases us down and wants so much more for us than sometimes we ever want for ourselves.